Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and and if you wave, they'll get a Bible into your hands. It will be marked right to our passage that we're studying this morning for your ease. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. Next Sunday morning, we will look to begin a new series in the book of Acts. Is a part of our study on Sunday morning, but I wanted to take a look at one more passage that was on my heart before we uh, leave Matthew for the time being. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus speaking, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, every single bit of it. We thank you that you stand behind your word and behind your promises, and we're grateful for that. We know as we pray so often that heaven and earth is going to pass away. All these things that seem so sure and so solid and are never going to be moved or changed. And yet it's all one day going to melt with a fervent heat and give way to a new heavens and a new earth. And yet your word is going to outlive all of it into eternity. And we thank you for the blessing that is ours as your children to be able to build our lives and build our eternities upon your truth. Now we ask for your Holy Spirit to take these verses and give them a life and an application to our lives that would never otherwise be possible. Help us to hear your voice this morning, Father, in our individual lives through this passage. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit. We pray for these two needs in our children's church on Sunday evening, and we ask you to touch the hearts of those that are supposed to step in and be involved and just confirm to them, Lord, your call upon their lives and don't let fear or a sense of inadequacy hinder a single person. And, Lord, we pray that you would continue to put your finishing touches on family camp this weekend that everyone would leave blessed and filled with excitement and all of the kids with a sense of how wonderful the days have been and bring them home safely to us, we ask. And we ask all of these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage of Scripture, we have one of the most famous and... Uh, treasured invitations of Jesus to be found in all of the Bible. And it's a marvel, really, in every way. Uh, For some of you, it's the very first time you have ever heard those verses read, this invitation of Jesus. How exciting for you to hear that. And then to hear your very first teaching, um, endeavoring to explain what God is saying to you through the passage. But for many of us, this passage is an old friend to us. And sometimes you can take old friends for granted, can't you? 
And sometimes we can take old friends in the Scripture for granted, and it's just nice to stop and look at it and to be awed once again by what the Lord Jesus is saying uh, to us through it today. The invitation, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. You think about that invitation for a moment. Come unto me, Jesus says, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. If I see people who are laboring and heavy laden, I'm looking for a closet to duck into. I can hardly take care of my own labors and my own burdens in life. I could never make this declaration to people. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I couldn't make that declaration to a single person in this world and offer them anything other than a little bit of encouragement and maybe a little bit of comfort and a little bit of pity and call me whenever you know you need someone to pray for you. But in terms of being able to take on somebody else's burdens and to take on their labors, I can't even take care of my own. How am I going to take care of them in one other person's life, let alone make an invitation like this to the whole world? A person that makes this invitation is either crazy or they're God. And Jesus isn't crazy, he's God. And so he makes this marvelous, marvelous invitation to the whole world. So the invitation is staggering in terms of its scope. No one is excluded. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. If the scope of the invitation is staggering, then the promise related to the invitation is simply jaw-dropping. He goes on further and adds to the promise, and I will give you rest. There's nothing significant in offering to the whole world, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, if I'm not going to do anything about it, if I'm incapable of doing anything to relieve what it is that they're facing. But Jesus makes the invitation, and then he adds the promise, and I will give you rest. And you think about that, that every person in the world, we can come to him at his invitation. We don't have to wonder what he thinks about us, whether he will accept us, whether he will take us on as a project. We don't have to wonder about any of those things. He speaks here and declares that we can come to him in our laboring and burdened condition, and he promises to give us rest. And if that promise is true, then that promise is priceless. Because there's a point in time that happens in all of our lives where we realize that one of the most important things in life to possess is this thing called rest. And if a person does not know rest in this life, you can have everything else in the world, position, fame, celebrity, money, power, all of it. But without the ability to rest, there is no capacity to enjoy anything else in life. Rest is very, very precious stuff. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that every single person in this world is laboring and heavy laden. And Jesus knows it. And the reason that Jesus knows it is that he spent 33 and a half years in his incarnation between the time 
of his birth until the time of his death, living in this fallen world, facing all of the temptations that we face, facing all of the uh, difficulties of life and more that, than, that we have experienced. So he has experienced planet Earth in all of its fallenness very much up close. Right of the book of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us lay, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And it's very important to understand that when Jesus makes this call to all who are laboring and heavy laden, he is not making this invitation in his mind to some very small minority within the human condition. He does not have in his mind that I'm talking about 10% of the population of the world at any point in time that is struggling in an extra kind of way within the world. Because Jesus gives this invitation to the whole world, it is to the whole world, because he knows like nobody else knows that this is our universal condition for every single one of us in this room. The word labor means to labor to the point of exhaustion or fatigue. What a world we live in for labor. Push, 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 pressure, 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 pressure. The phrase heavy laden, it means to be loaded down or burdened. It speaks of a ship that's been completely loaded with cargo. It can't take one more bale of hay or one more uh, bag of grain to be placed upon it without it sinking. We talk about people who feel like they're carrying the weight of the whole world. That's what Jesus is talking about here. I think what a description this is, not only of ancient life, but of modern life today. I'm old enough to um, have spent the very early years of my life in the 1950s and certainly watched television beyond the 1950s a little bit later in which the television shows that were kind of set within that era. And typically in all of those shows you had the father who would work. He would have a full-time job and it was typically a a 40-hour-a-week job. And then the wife would be a homemaker or she would be a mother. And on one person's wage, just the father's wage, they would earn enough money to buy a home, some kind of home that would be their own, to buy a car, to be able to have medical coverage, to go on a vacation once a year and so forth. But look at where we are today. Typically both the husband and the wife are working and each of them, And you know it because you live it every week. Each of them living and working rather harder than that man worked back in the 1950s. And then trying to, all in order to try and afford the same things and the same lifestyle. And you think about all of our gadgets that we have, all of these appliances, all these things that we call modern conveniences that are supposed to take a load off of us in life. And yet today we seem to be rushing and hustling to get to everything we need to to the point of exhaustion. It is most people I know. 
hustling to make ends meet, to keep food on the table, to keep the car running for the next week, to invest at least some time within our marriages, and then have some time to be able to raise and disciple the children. And then you throw in some health issues that have to be juggled in the midst of it. And a younger person or an older person who has introduced themselves into uh, higher education and they're going taking the classes in college and juggling jobs on top of it, part-time jobs to make all of it happen in order to get a degree to help them get a job. And we could easily spend the rest of our morning talking about statistics concerning the breakdown of people's emotional health, their physical health, their mental health in the current state of things. The average American works 47 hours a week, doesn't count the commute. And for many, the commute is two and three plus hours a day added to the work week and the work day. Today in the United States of America, suicide is now, it is the highest rate that it's been in 25 years. People are breaking. People are cracking under the condition and the pressures and the loads that are on us in this modern world. I don't think that most of us need a bunch of statistics to be convinced of the truth of what we're talking about here today, that people, we're living in this to the point of exhaustion, being crushed under the burdens of life because we already know that it's true experientially. And we know in our heart, in our core, as we look at life, we see what it is now, what it is becoming at an even faster rate And we realize that something is broken about all of this. Something is broken about how people are viewed, where people are being pushed to, and that there must be uh, something different. There must be an alternative to it. And that's what enters into our mind. How long can we give ourselves to commercial Babylon and to uh, spiritual Babylon until... People are just being crushed and broken right and left without any kind of thought, and the next generation is plugged in to the whole mess and into the whole scene. And our minds in the midst of it, anybody that's been in the system for a while of just fallen planet Earth and realizes that, is there a solution to this? Is there an alternative to this? And Jesus comes on the scene in three very simple verses in chapter 11 and tells us there is. And he tells us that everyone needs to hear it because everyone is laboring and heavy laden. And I don't care who we are in this world, every single person in this world labors and is burdened by the guilt of the sin of our past. We are burdened by the demands of our current life. And every single one of us, it is only measured by one degree or another from one person to another, but it is all of our realities that we live in fear of the uncertainties of the future. And every single person in this world is under that burden and under that weight. You notice Jesus' solution, his alternative to all of this, is given in three simple phrases. Verse 28, come to me. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you. Verse 29, learn of me. And when Jesus says, come unto me, 
Essentially, this speaks of salvation, the invitation of every single human being, including you, to come to him and put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And Jesus knows that we cannot know rest for our souls. We cannot know any meaningful rest in life until we are engaged in a relationship with God for the simple reason that each and every one of us, you included, has been created for relationship with God. Probably the best verse that speaks of it is in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. This is sung in the heavenly scene to God, where it's declared in that, by that heavenly host, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. We were created for God's pleasure. We were created for relationship with him. And until we are engaged in the one great thing that we've been created for, until we are engaged in the single great relationship that we've been created for, there will always be this sense there must be something more to life than I have experienced. And the reason that we feel that is until we are engaged in that relationship, there is something more to life than we have experienced, and it is the most important thing in life. I think about King Solomon in the Old Testament, David's son, uniquely qualified for the experiment that he attempted during some number of years in his life. And he determined, he was raised in a Christian home, so to speak. He knew better. But he determined that he was going to try and find the meaning of life under the sun, under the S-U-N. He determined that I'm going to try, attempt to find meaning and purpose in life in the context solely of the creation. I'm going to try and find meaning and purpose in life independent of a relationship with God by ignoring God in that relationship. And he gave himself to that. And he was uniquely qualified to be able to do that and that he had immense, immeasurable power, wealth, a thousand wives and concubines, so many servants, gold and money. Money was so, you know, um, present in Jerusalem at the time of his reign that to make something out of silver was to make it out of rocks. It meant nothing. If it wasn't made out of gold, it was nothing. And so Solomon, able to explore all of these things in order to find out, if anybody could find out that there is meaning and purpose in life independent of God, he was going to do it. And he gave himself to the amassing of wealth and building projects in education, in farming, in ranching, in parting, in drunkenness, in pleasure, in selfishness, in popularity. And at the end of the search, his conclusion concerning his attempt to find meaning and purpose in life independent of God, he said, it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. He said, it is all empty and frustrating. And God knows that it is. 
I don't know that there's two better words to describe life lived independent of God and that it is empty and it is frustrating. It is an attempt to grasp the wind. And why is that so? Jesus spoke to a woman at a well in John chapter 4 who had been married multiple times and now she wasn't even bothering with marriage. She's just living with whatever man she's living with at the moment. Jesus enters into a discussion with her and here is a woman who is trying to find meaning and purpose in life in relationship, specifically in marriage, a relationship with another man. If I just can find the right one, then my life will click. It will all make sense to me. And she tried one after another, after another, after another. And Jesus said to her, he said, whoever drinks there at a well, he's using the water, the imagery of the water. He said, whoever drinks of this water, this physical water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. But the water that I give him shall become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Talking about the relationship that he brings a person into with God. Talking about the Holy Spirit coming into a person's life to begin that relationship. And Jesus was saying to that woman at the well 2,000 years ago, and he says to every single one of us in the world today, you will never satisfy a spiritual thirst with a physical something. It is impossible. It cannot happen. No one will ever be successful at doing that. And we have been created a spiritual something. We've been created for relationship with God. And as a result, we can only find fulfillment as we're doing that which we have been created for. And I think about the weight that is lifted off of a human life. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. The weight that is lifted off of our life, the guilt of our sin that is lifted off of our life, all of the emptiness, all of the frustration of life that is lifted off of our lives when we come to him and to make him our Savior. And the Lord is, that's his first call. It begins with coming unto him for salvation. He goes on in verse 29 and says, Take my yoke upon you. And a yoke was simply a piece of wood, a wooden cross piece that was placed over the necks of two animals, typically oxen, in order to get them to be, to guide them for plowing a field or drawing a cart down a road or something like that. And this imagery that Jesus is using here, when he talks about his yoke being on us, it speaks of our submission to his will and to his purposes for our lives once we become a Christian. So peace isn't found, rest isn't found just in becoming a Christian. There's more to it than that. No one will ever know rest without that first step, but it doesn't stop there. Because Christianity is more than just fire insurance, it is more than just salvation, the forgiveness of my sins. I am becoming now a follower of Jesus. That's the commitment that I've made, to become a learner of Jesus allowing him now to guide and to direct my life. 
And to be yoked to him or take on his yoke is to fully surrender the control of my life to him. Coming to that place where it's, Lord, I don't want the steering wheel anymore. You know, I don't want to be the co-pilot. I don't want to be the pilot. I want you to run my life. One of the, I think the greatest thing, to, the greatest testimony in the body of Christ is for a person to get saved in our first or second grade class where we have the need and then to live the rest of their life walking with the Lord. One of the advantages, I think, of, uh, you know, if we're going to look for some advantages for coming to know the Lord a little bit later in life is that after you've had control of the, had the, uh, the control in your hand for a while and flying the plane of your life into adult life, and then once you realize, I don't know what I'm doing, and you hand it over to God, I mean, you, you, there's no illusion that, I mean, it's like, you, it's like no, I, no I, not only do I not want to go to hell and I want to go to heaven, but I've made a bit of a hell for myself here in this life, and I want to turn the control of my life. I want you to lead me. I want you to guide me. I'm done with it. And that's a beautiful thing that happens in a Christian's life. And that's what Jesus calls us to. I speak of it every so often because it's meaningful to me, and I want everybody to hear it. I was in a pastor's office probably 25-plus years ago, and he had a little wooden plaque up on his bookshelf, and it said, God's will... Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. You think about what an indescribably crushing burden it is in life to be solely responsible to guide and to direct my own life every day within the limitations of my own wisdom in the midst of the great uncertainty and power of the world all around me. To have no God to guide, no Jesus, no Holy Spirit, no Bible. Every day I wake up on my own. I've got to make every decision on my own. I've got to declare every verdict on my own. I've got to make every diagnosis of every situation on my own. And the realization that the decisions that I'm making don't just affect me, but they affect everyone else around me. And I think that sooner or later people come to feel the burden of that and it begins to become too much for them. I think of how often it is that you've got a young woman or a young man who's been raised in the church and they able to move out of the house or whatever, and now I've got my own ideas about my own direction in life and my own decisions for my own life. And I don't want God to be making those decisions, and I don't want anybody else to be making those decisions. And so they take over the control, and they start to head in that way with making the decisions, and then one day it happens so often. They end up then getting married, And then they end up having a child. And then here is this little human being that's in their arms now. And they realize that my decisions are no longer just going to affect me. They're going to face, they're going to affect this little child that is in my arms. And how often it is something like that where people realize I don't even have the wisdom or the wherewithal to even influence and properly raise a single child. 
I don't want the responsibility. I can't bear the responsibility. I'm going to turn back to God. And you find them coming back into church. And, but it's under the weight of the responsibility of just a single life. What an impossible crushing burden has been lifted off of us in coming to Christ in coming to a Savior who not only is willing and able to save us and to forgive us, but also eager to lead us and to guide our lives with a perfection that we could never, ever come close to. The perfection the Apostle Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 12, chapters, verses 1 and 2. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then here it is. He said, and don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There is no will for our life that is better than the will that God has for our life. It is perfection. And how does Jesus lead us and direct us in life in this way? He does it through his word, where we hit these circumstances and situations in life, and we ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about this? And we discover what the Bible has to say about it, and then we do that. We're following Jesus' yoke. We're following his leading and his direction. He does it sometimes through prayer where we ask God concerning everything in our life, Lord, what am I supposed to do here? And he always answers that prayer for wisdom. Never as soon as I want him to. But he always answers it. Always answers it. Sometimes he'll lead us and guide us through the promptings of his Holy Spirit. Very often he'll do it through his peace, the peace that spoken of in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And the word rule there means umpire. We come to these forks in the road. As Christians, we live in a peace with God. And we come to these forks in the road, and then, and as we're walking in peace, we look at one fork, and suddenly our peace is crumpled up. We lose our peace in looking in that direction. And then we look in the other fork in the road, and our peace abides, and God is telling us what direction to go in. And he leads us by his peace. And he says, let this. This is the common experience of the child of God as he leads us. And as we submit to his leading and his direction and his plans for our lives, we experience something priceless beyond peace with God, which is what we have when we come to know him as a Christian. We then experience the peace of God. And so rest is found in submitting the direction and the control of my life to Jesus, surrendering to his will for our Lives, And sometimes that's not easy. Sometimes that's not easy. And I think it's progressive. A lot of times I think I'm surrendered until this happens. And now I realize, no, I've got, I got my hand on the steering wheel a little more than I like seeing here. And it's a chance then to surrender to him. But that place where we come into our life, where we say to him, Lord, I don't want my will. I don't want to direct my life. 
I don't want come to the end of my life and it was the uh, compilation of all of my desires and my goals and my wisdom. I only want your will for my life. You direct me and by the grace of God I will follow you there. And then notice third, he said, learn of me in verse 29. In other words, Jesus is saying, make my life the model and the example for your life. So rest is found in Christ-likeness. Rest is found in becoming more and more like him in this life. And I can only know rest to the degree that my life becomes more like him. So no wonder why the Holy Spirit is, continues until our dying breath to conform us into the image of Christ because of the rest and the freedom that is found there. Jesus lived a life that was completely different from the world that he lived in. Completely different from the world he lived in. And the life that Jesus lived is completely different from the world that we live in and the life that the world all around us is clamoring for us to live. There is Jesus' life in the scriptures and his decision-making and his choices to live the life that he lived. And then there is all of the pressure of the world to live the life that it has planned for us. And Jesus is telling us here, and it's a word to the wise, that his way is the way to live. He is not only the way to be saved, he is the way to live a human life in any age and in this age as well. He's not just the way of salvation. He's the way to live. And it's so important for us to take this seriously as Christians in order for us to know rest. Practically, what does it look like? I ask myself decision by decision, what would Jesus do here? And then do that. What would Jesus and what I know of him from the Gospels, would he buy this or not? Would he encumber his life in this way? Is this how he would spend money and then to purchase accordingly? Somebody says, I think he's setting me up for an offering. I'm not setting you up for an offering. The culture that we live in is so covetous and it is so materialistic and it tells us a thousand times a day every single one of us in its own way that life is found here and it's found there and accumulating this and accumulating that and buying this and buying that and it can take us decades even as a Christian before we stop and say wow maybe I should it's not just enough to be able to afford this, but would Jesus buy it? And why would he or why wouldn't he? There's a lot of things that we could talk about in this regard, but the fact of the matter is, without at least being somewhat alert to this, in a materialistic and covetous culture that we live in, every single one of us will end up buying just enough stuff that it takes all of our time to take care of our stuff. 
And there will be no time left for a relationship with God, much less time to then serve him for the advancement of the kingdom. So to ask ourselves, would Jesus purchase this? Would he bring this into his life? What style, lifestyle or standard of living would Jesus choose for himself in this culture? And then to choose that lifestyle and to choose that standard of living. I encourage all of us, but I encourage all of you that are in your 20s and college age, don't wait until you're in your 50s and in your 60s to get this figured out. It's the way to live today. It's the way to live today. He is the model, not the world that you live in, but he is the model in these things. What would Jesus say in this conversation? And then only say that. What would Jesus think about this situation? And then to make that our assessment of the situation as well. And the fact of the matter is every single one of us sitting here this morning, we are modeling our decision-making Our lifestyle, our speech, our thinking, our perspectives in life, we are modeling that after someone or something. Every one of us is doing that. It may be our father, it may be our mother, it may be a teacher that we respect, it may be a mentor, it may be a celebrity, it may be an educator, it may be an athlete, it may be an author, but everyone has some model for how we we make decisions within our lives. And here Jesus calls upon us to give him that place in our lives. And it is a key to experiencing rest for our souls. We cannot have control of the direction and the decisions within our life and no rest. Those things are to be in Jesus' hands. And we cannot know rest independent of learning from him, looking at his life and saying, that is the model, what does that look like in 2015? And the lifestyle and the culture around us will lead us, because it's dominated by greed and dominated by self and dominated by fear, it will lead us into a very different life than Jesus will lead us into. And the one will lead us into a life of exhaustion and overload, And Jesus will lead us into a life of rest for our soul. And it's so practical and important for us to consider this and to recognize it as Christians. I have a doctor friend who once reminded me, I don't know why, (laughs) but he once reminded me at an annual checkup. He said, life began in a garden. And it's true, isn't it? We were never created to live the kind of lives that most of us are living, dominated by the expectation and the pressures of the culture around us. We were never, ever created or made to do it. And we know that the Garden of Eden is long gone now, but there still is a place of rest to be found in the world, and it is found in Christ and examining the life that he lived in this world, and then making it the model for our lives as well. Now let me close with this. How do we know that we've got this right? How do we know that we're on the right track? 
Jesus tells us, and it's, I think it can be like the mysterious part of his invitation here in the latter part of verse 29, where he says, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus spoke those words in verse 30, that my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he was speaking to a very, very diverse group of people, very large group of people. Most of them were common people, but not all of them were common people. A good portion of the audience that he was speaking to was religious, Jewish religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. And later in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus would declare of the scribes and Pharisees to the multitude. He said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to do, observe, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. And then here it is. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. And when Jesus spoke to that audience, a largely Jewish audience, and he speaking to them about a relationship with God. All they could think of when thinking about a relationship with God and thinking of religion was to think about the scribes and the Pharisees and to think that what Jesus was calling them to do was to become what the religious leaders around them had become because that's all that had been modeled before them all of their lives. And when they looked at the scribes and they looked at the Pharisees and they looked at what Jesus was saying in their mind, the great thing that they're grappling with is in their mind as they looked at these religious leaders is that religion is just one more burden in life. That God was there only to add a whole new set of burdens upon a life that was already burdened on top of all of the burdens of the world and all of the burdens that others have placed upon us. And for a lot of people, that's their understanding of Christianity is today as well. There is no peace or rest found in religion or a relationship with God. They look at that and words like that and they think to themselves, I can barely take care of my life right now. How am I going to take care of God in all of this? He's just going to become one more person in an already long line in my life that I have to please and appease. And this idea that a person has to suffer in a relationship with God or else they're not doing it right, that comes from the Pharisees, that God loves us and he blesses us on the basis of perfection in our life as opposed to the fact that he really does love us and he really does pity us. He really does understand how hard life is this side of heaven and that he really is for us. And when a person thinks as the scribes and the Pharisees did, that religion and a relationship with God is just one more place to suffer in life. 
it produces a person, and that religious system, that kind of religious system always produces, and there's a certain kind of person who excels in legalism and excels in being a scribe and a Pharisee, but it always produces a person who is harsh and judgmental toward others and proud as opposed to what Jesus will always produce in a life and what he calls us to. And that is gentleness and lowliness of heart. And how can I know that I am on the right track, that I am not just engaged in some religion that is going to become an even greater burden for me as opposed to the relationship with God that Jesus is talking about. The one will produce a very self-righteous, very harsh and loving person. And what Jesus calls us to will produce a very gentle and loving and caring person toward both the lost and the body of Christ. It is so important to realize that wrong religion is as great a threat to our rest as the secular world is. This is what Jesus calls us to. Jesus does not call upon us to follow him because he wants to add to all of the burdens that we're already carrying in life, but in order to provide us with a place of rest in this world that he knows we desperately need in a relationship with him that is based upon love, based upon his grace, and not upon our works and our human effort. A relationship with him that is not a burden, but is a joy and is a blessing. Sometimes when you begin the Christian life and you walk with him for a few years and we think, well, what will this look like in 20 years or what will it look like in 30 years? And if you're anything like me, I thought that, well, Christianity will just become deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and in many respects it does become that in a beautiful way. But sometimes you can think that this is all going to go from complexity to greater complexity to greater complexity to greater complexity. And then it doesn't. It becomes very, very simple. And the truths that are most important rise to the top, and they become the things that become most important to us. Things like what's encapsulated in that little chorus that I hope everybody has learned sometime in their life and preferably the earlier the better in their children's church class. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. That's what Jesus calls us into in a relationship with him. 
because he knows we desperately need it because we are so far away from home. One day we'll be there, but not yet. And we need this Jesus Garden of Eden that he's spoken to of us in this passage. How precious is Jesus' invitation here, and it's found in coming to him for salvation. And if you've never trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front here immediately after the service, and they would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God, and then the life of rest that follows it. And I'd be happy to pray with you to do that. So number one, coming to him for salvation, burdens and all. And then number two, surrendering the direction and the control of our lives to him. And then number three, making Jesus our model for every area of our lives. What would Jesus do? I'd like you to remain seated, and I'd like to ask the worship team to come out or to come forward at this moment. And I don't want to just leave this message and close up hard, so to speak, and then, okay, we've got the kids, and then we've got this, and then the lunch, and how long, and the ham is probably burning in the oven at home, or whatever, um, these things that can come into our minds. But just allow in the privacy of our home, of our heart, just the beauty of what it is that Jesus has spoken of here, and allow us just to minister to him through a, a hymn, through a song here, and just anything that needs to happen between us and him in his desire and in his invitation into a life of rest that he so longs for each one of us. Samuel, would you lead us?